Welcome to the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. This podcast will be a sharing of part of my morning routine as I prepare for the day with the Word of God. We will be partaking of Puritan prayers from the Valley of Vision, each day's morning devotional from Charles Haddon Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, and we'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is the newest and, I believe, the most accurate translation of the Word of God. We will be following a Bible reading calendar that provides for reading the whole Bible in a year that was created by Minister Robert Murray McShane for his congregation back in 1842, and that has been a part of my daily reading for over six years now. Good morning, and welcome to the morning segment of the Wednesday, February 22nd episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. That's going to be episode shoot, I think it's 175, episode 175. Um, I'm Wayne Floyd, your host. The Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble member of the Christian podcast community. You can find the Christian podcast community at christianpodcastcommunity.org. Definitely worth your time. There are a bunch of wonderful men and women of God out there generating great content to listen to. I would definitely recommend it. It is worth your while. I also want to continue to point you to the very last link in our show notes. Excuse me. Um, It is for the Vail Valley Baptist Church Give, Send, Go campaign. We are striving to um, pay off our mortgage rapidly so we can shift gears and commence the establishment of a Christian classic education-based school to provide an alternative in our community um, for those um, for parents um, and grandparents, in my case, grandparent, um, an alternative for our children, one we feel we can trust. So uh, definitely, um, I would ask you to click on the link, go take a read, and then we got three things we'd, we'd like for you to do. We'd like you to pray for us, we'd like you to prayerfully consider giving to us, and then we would like you to pass the link along so others can look at it and make the, do the same thing for us. All right, now, this morning's going to be a little bit interesting. Um, my normal links to uh, Banner of Truth and to the... Uh, Valley of Vision Prayers is not working at this time. It was this morning, but it is not working now. So I'm going to be reading. This is going to be interesting. I'm going to be reading right out of the Valley of Vision, which is not bad. It's just the room's a little dark, but I'll go ahead and do that. So let's go ahead. Sorry, let me adjust something here. All right. So let's go ahead and open up with our fourth day morning prayer. It's called True Christianity. Lord of heaven, I'm sorry, let's pray. Lord of heaven, thy goodness is inexpressible and inconceivable. In the works of creation, thou art almighty. In the dispensations of providence, all wise. In the gospel of grace, all love. And in thy son, thou hast provided for our deliverance from the effects of sin. The justification of our persons, the sanctification of our natures, the perseverance of our souls in the path of life. Though exposed to the terror of thy, law, of thy law, we have a refuge from the storm. Though compelled to cry unclean, we have a fountain for sin. Though creature cells of emptiness, we have a fullness accessible to all and incapable of reduction. Grant us always to know that to walk with Jesus makes other interests a shadow and a dream. Keep us from intermittent attention to eternal things. Save us from the delusion of those who fail to go far in religion who are concerned but not converted, who have another heart but not a new one, who have light, zeal, confidence, sorry, confidence but not Christ, 
Let us judge our Christianity not only by our dependence upon Jesus, but by our love to him, our conformity to him, our knowledge of him. Give us a religion that is both real and progressive, that holds on its way and grows stronger, that lives and works in the spirit, that profits by every correction and is injured by no carnal indulgence. Amen. All right. And now our morning devotion from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening for February 22nd. The text for it is from Genesis 49:24. His bow, his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. That strength which God gives to to his Josephs is real strength. Sorry is real strength. It is not a boasted valor, a fiction, a thing of which men talk, but which ends in smoke. It is true divine strength. Why does Joseph stand against temptation? Because God gives him aid. There is naught that we can do without the power of God. All true strength comes from the mighty God of Jacob. Notice in what a blessedly familiar way God gives this strength to Joseph. The arms of his hand were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. Thus God is represented as putting his hands on Joseph's hands, placing his arms on Joseph's arms. Like as a father teaches his children, so the Lord teaches them that fear him. He puts his arms upon them. Marvelous condescension. God, almighty, eternal, omnipotent, stoops from his throne and lays his hand upon the child's arm, stretching his arm upon the arm of Joseph, that he may be made strong. This strength was also covenant strength, for it is ascribed to the mighty God of Jacob. Now wherever you read of the God of Jacob in the Bible, you should remember the covenant which Jacob, which, with Jacob. Christians love to think of God's covenant. All the power, all the grace, all the blessings, all the mercies, all the comforts, all the things we have flow to us from the wellhead through the covenant. If there were no covenant, then we should fall indeed, for all grace proceeds from it, as light and heat from the sun. No angels ascend or descend, save upon that ladder which Jacob saw, at the top of which stood a covenant God. Sorry, stood a covenant God. Christian, it may be that the archers have sorely grieved you, and shot at you, and wounded you, but still your bow abides in strength. Be sure, then, to ascribe all the glory to Jacob's God. All right, now we're going to do our reading for the day. Um, we're going to read Leviticus 13, Mark 6, 1 through 29, Psalm 39, and Proverbs 10, 10. So, wow, that went to the wrong place. Sorry, give me a second. Okay, there we go. Sorry. Got it. Leviticus 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, When a man has on the skin of his body a swelling or a scab or a bright spot, and it becomes an infection of leprosy on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priests. Then the priest shall look at the mark on the skin of the body, and if the hair in the infection has turned white, and the infection appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is an infection of leprosy. When the priest has looked at him, he shall pronounce him unclean. But if the bright spot is white on the skin of his body, and it does not appear to be deeper than the skin, and the hair on it has not turned white, then the priest shall isolate him who has the infection for seven days. 
then the priest shall look at him on the seventh day. And if in his eyes the infection has not changed and the infection has not spread on the skin, then the priest shall isolate him for seven more days. And the priest shall look at him again on the seventh day. And if the infection is faded and the mark has not spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only a scab, and he shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the scab spreads farther on the skin, after he has shown him himself to the priest for his cleansing, he shall appear again to the priest. And the priest shall look, and if the scab has spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is leprosy. When the affection of leprosy is on a man, then he shall be brought to the priest. The priest shall then look, and if there is a white swelling in the skin, and it is turned the hair white, and there is raw flesh still alive in the swelling, it is a chronic leprosy on the skin of his body. And the priest shall pronounce him unclean. He shall not isolate him, for he is unclean. But if the leprosy breaks out farther on the skin, and the leprosy covers all the skin of him who has the infection from his head, I'm sorry, from his head even to his feet, as far as the priest can see, then the priest shall look, and behold, if the leprosy, leprosy has covered all his body, he shall pronounce clean him who has the infection. It has all turned white, and he is clean. But wherever raw flesh appears on him, he shall be unclean. And the priest shall look at the raw flesh, and he shall pronounce him unclean. The raw flesh is unclean, it is leprosy. Or if the raw flesh turns again and is changed to white, then he shall come to the priest, and the priest shall look at him, and behold, if the infection is turned to white, then the priest shall pronounce clean him who has the infection. He is clean. When the body has a boil on its skin and is healed, and in the place of the boil there is a white swelling or a reddish-white bright spot, then it shall be shown to the priest. And the priest shall look, and behold, if it appears to be lower than the skin, and the hair on it is turned white, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is the infection of leprosy. It is broken out in the boil. But if the priest looks at it, and behold, there are no white hairs in it, and it is not lower than the skin, and is faded, then the priest shall isolate him for seven days. And if it spreads farther on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is an infection. But if the bright spot remains in its place and does not spread, it is only the scar of the boil, and the priest shall pronounce him clean. Or if the body sustains in its skin a burn by fire, and the raw flesh of the burn becomes a bright spot, reddish-white or white, then the priest shall look at it, and if the hair in the bright spot has turned white, and it appears to be deeper than the skin, it is leprosy, it is broken out in the burn. Therefore the priest shall pronounce him unclean, it is an infection of leprosy. But if the priest looks at it, and behold, there is no white hair in the bright spot, and it is no deeper than the skin, but is faded, then the priest shall isolate him for seven days, and the priest shall look at him on the seventh day. If it spreads farther at the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is an infection of leprosy. But if the bright spot remains in its place, and has not spread in the skin, but is faded, it is the swelling from the burn, and the priest shall pronounce him clean for it is only the scar of the burn. Now if a man or woman has an infection on the head or on the beard, then the priest shall look at the infection, and if it appears to be deeper than the skin, and there is thin yellowish hair in it, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a scale. It is leprosy of the head or of the beard. But if the priest looks at the infection of the scale, and behold, it appears to be no deeper than the skin, and there is no black hair in it, then the priest shall isolate the person with the scaly infection for seven days. Now on the seventh day, 
the priest shall look at the infection. And if the scale has not spread, and there is no yellowish hair in it, and the appearance of the scale is no deeper than the skin, then he shall shave himself, but he shall not shave the scale. And the priest shall isolate the person with the scale seven more days. Then on the seventh day the priest shall look at the scale. And if the scale has not spread in the skin, and it appears to be no deeper than the skin, the priest shall pronounce him clean, and he shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the scale spreads farther in the skin after his cleansing, then the priest shall look at him. And if the scale has spread in the skin, the priest need not seek for the yellowish hair. He is unclean. If in his sight the scale has remained, however, and the black hair has grown in it, the scale has healed, he is clean, and the priest shall pronounce him clean. When a man or a woman has bright spots on the skin of the body, even white bright spots, then the priest shall look, and if the bright spots on the skin of their bodies are a faded white, it is eczema that is broken out on the skin. He is clean. Now if a man loses the hair of his head, he is bald. He is clean. And if his head becomes bald at the front and sides, he is bald on the forehead. He is clean. But if on the bald head or the bald forehead there occurs a reddish-white infection, it is leprosy breaking out on his bald head or on his bald forehead. Then the priest shall look at him, and if the swelling of the infection is reddish-white on his bald head or on his bald forehead, like the appearance of leprosy in the skin of the body, he is a leprous man. He is unclean. The priest shall surely pronounce him unclean. His infection is on his head. As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, and the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and he shall cover his mustache and call out, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the, day, all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His place of habitation shall be outside the camp. When a garment has a mark of leprosy in it, whether it is a wool garment or a linen garment, whether in warp or woof, of linen or of wool, whether in leather or in any article made of leather, leather, if the mark is greenish or reddish in the garment or in the leather or in the warp or in the woof or in any article of leather, it is a leprous mark and shall be shown to the priest. Then the priest shall look at the mark and shall isolate the article with the mark for seven days. He shall then look at the mark on the seventh day. If the mark has spread in the garment, whether in the warp or in the woof, or in the leather, whatever the purpose for which the leather is used, the mark is a leprous malignancy. It is unclean. So he shall burn the garment, whether the warp or the woof, in wool or in linen, or any article of leather in which the mark occurs, for it is a leprous malignancy. It shall be burned in the fire. But if the priest shall look, and Sorry. And indeed, um, and indeed the mark has not spread in the garment, either in the warp or in the woof, or in any article of leather, then the priest shall command them to wash the thing in which he, the mark occurs, and he shall isolate it for seven more days. After the article with the mark has been washed, the priest shall again look, and if the mark has not changed its appearance, even though the mark has not spread, it is unclean. You shall burn it in the fire, whether any... And eating away has produced hardness or produced bareness on the top or on the front of it. Then, if the priest looks, and if the mark has faded after it has been washed, then he shall tear it out of the garment or out of the leather, whether from the warp or from the woof. And if it appears again in the garment, whether in the warp or in the woof, or in any article of leather, it is an outbreak. You shall burn the article with the mark in the fire. 
Now the garment, whether the warp or the woof, or any article of leather from which the mark has departed, when you washed it, shall then be washed a second time, and will be clean. This is the law for the mark of leprosy, in a garment of wool or linen, whether in the warp or in the woof, or in any article of leather, for pronouncing it clean or unclean. All right. Mark 6, verses 1 through 29. And Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to this man, and such miracles as these performed by his hand? Is this man not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were taking offense at him. And Jesus was saying to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his own relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no miracles there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was marveling at their unbelief, and he was going around the villages teaching. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs, and was giving them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a staff only, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, Do not put on two tunics. And he was saying to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from them, Shake from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And King Herod heard it, for his name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. <clears throat> now Herodias was holding a grudge against him and was wanting to put him to death and was not able. For Herod was afraid of John knowing that he, was, he, that he was a righteous and holy man, and he was keeping him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. And a strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his great men and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of um, his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back, I'm sorry, to bring back his head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. All right. 
Now, Psalm 39. For the choir director, for Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will keep watch over my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will keep watch over my mouth, as with a muzzle, while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute with silence. I even kept silent from speaking good, and my anguish grew worse. My heart was hot within me. While I meditated, the fire was burning. Then I spoke with my tongue. Yahweh caused me to know my end, and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely every man, even standing firm, is altogether vanity. Surely every man walks about as a shadow. Surely they make an uproar in vain. He piles up riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, what do I hope in? My expectation is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the wicked fool. I have become mute. I do not open my mouth, because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me. Because of the opposition of your hand, I am wasting away. With reproofs you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is vanity. Hear my prayer, O Yahweh, and give ear to my cry for help. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a foreign resident like all my fathers. Turn your gaze away from me, that I may smile again, before I go and am no more. All right, and again, Proverbs 10, verse 10. He who winks the eye causes pain, and an ignorant fool of loose lips will be ruined. All right, well, that is our reading for today. Um, I, I hope this time has been edifying for you. I thank you for coming along with us. Um, I hope you have a wonderful day and that you do all that you do for the glory of God. Um, God willing, I'll see you this evening. And let me dig um, in Valley Vision. Let me dig up the prayer that is our closing prayer for today. Huh, one more page. There we go. All right. And this is going to be our closing prayer. It's called the minister before sacrament. Let's pray. Lord, Teach me the nature of a sacrament as a seal and pledge of love, that Christ is faithful to make himself a present reality to his own who are guests at his table. Assure me by it that his word is made good to my faith, that he be sacramentally, that he by, he by sacramental union is given to me, that I shall have strength not to fall into sin, that his life begun in me will be perfected hereafter, that my covenant with him is confirmed that he gives himself to all who take him thankfully. As I come to the feast, help me not to recall my neglect of duties. I'm sorry, help me to recall my neglect of duties towards myself, my family, church, friends, by not instructing, exhorting, being an example. Grant me to see my ignorance, not knowing how or what to pray, my unsavor my unsavoriness not delighting in, but loathing to speak for thee. My pride because I would not speak what I could from fear of not doing it well. My lukewarmness in not reaching for thy glory. My idleness and sloth. My want of tender love. My apprehension of unfruitfulness. In case I should attempt and do no good. And hence sow seed upon rocks. Let me know that even if I have done right, yet I must lament the principles that caused my neglect. 
that good duties might be done or omitted out of ill principles or motives. And only when these are dealt, dealt with shall I know what is my duty and its extent. Heal me now as I approach thy table, and fill me with all grace with thyself. Amen. Okay, again, hope you have a wonderful day, and God willing, I will see you tomorrow. Have a great day. God bless. Welcome to the evening segment of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. Good evening and welcome to the evening segment of the Wednesday, February 22nd episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I believe that's episode 175. I continue to be Wayne Floyd, your host. Um, We are going to continue this evening um, in our reading of Thomas Watson's The Godly Man's Picture. Oh. Um, and Faith Comes From Hearing Podcast is a humble member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can reach us over at christianpodcastcommunity.org. I would definitely recommend that you do so. There are a bunch of great, great, great podcasts over there. More than you will ever figure out a way to listen to. But it's definitely worth your time to get on over there. All right, like I said, we're going to continue on in our reading of The Godly Man's Picture by Thomas Watson. Um, first though, we're going to go ahead and open up in prayer. And like, uh, I said in the morning segment, for some reason, the access to uh, banner of truth, their archive of, uh, the Valley of vision is not working right now. So I'm going to be reading these out of Valley of vision in this relatively dark room. So we'll see how we do. Um, so let's go ahead and pray this morning. We're going to be doing, um, we're opening this morning with a prayer called shortcomings. So let's pray. O living God, I bless thee that I see the worst of my heart as well as the best of it, that I can sorrow for those sins that carry me from thee, that it is thy deep and dear mercy to threaten punishment so that I may return, pray, live. My sin is to look on my faults and be discouraged, or to look on my good and be puffed up. I fall short of thy glory every day by spending hours unprofitably by thinking that the things I do are good when they are not done to thy end, nor spring from the rules of thy word. My sin is to fear what never will be. I forget to submit to thy will and fail to be quiet there. But scripture teaches me that thy active will reveals a steadfast purpose on my behalf, and this quietens my soul and makes me love thee. Keep me always in the understanding that saints mourn more for sin than other men. For when they see how great is thy wrath against sin, and how Christ's death alone pacifies that wrath, that makes them mourn the more. Help me to see that although I am in the wilderness, it is not all briars and barrenness. I have bread from heaven, streams from the rock, light by day, fire by night, thy dwelling place and thy mercy seat. I am sometimes discouraged by the way, by the, the way, but though winding and trying it is safe and short. Death dismays me, but my great high priest stands in its waters, and will open me a passage, and beyond is a better country. While I live, let my life be exemplary. When I die, may my end be peace. Amen. All right. And now, our devotion from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, for uh, the evening one for November 22nd. The text is from Nahum 1.3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. All right. 
Jehovah is slow to anger. When mercy cometh into the world, she driveth winged steeds. The axles of her chariot wheels are red hot with speed. But when wrath goeth forth, it toileth on with tardy footsteps. For God taketh no pleasure in the sinner's death. God's rod of mercy is ever in his hands. Outstretched, his sword of justice is in its scabbard, held down by that pierced hand of love which bled for the sins of men. The Lord is slow to anger, because he is great in power. He is truly great in power, who hath power over himself. When God's power doth restrain himself, then it is power indeed. The power that binds omnipotence that binds omnipotence is omnipotence surpassed. A man who has a strong mind can bear to be insulted long, and only resents the wrong when a sense of right demands his action. The weak mind is irritated at a little. The strong mind bears it like a rock, which moveth not through a thousand breakers, not though a thousand breakers dash upon it, and cast their pitiful malice in spray upon its summit. God maketh his enemies, and yet he bestirs not himself, but holdeth in his anger. If he were less divine than he is, he would long ere this have sent forth the whole of his thunders, and emptied the magazines of heaven. He would long ere this have blasted the earth with the wondrous fires of its lower regions, and man would have been utterly destroyed. But the greatness of his power brings us mercy. Dear reader, what is your state this evening? Can you by humble faith look to Jesus and say, My substitute, thou art my rock, my trust? Then, beloved, be not afraid of God's power, for by faith you have fled to Christ for refuge. The power of God need no more terrify you than the shield and sword of the warrior need terrify those whom he loves. Rather rejoice that he who is great in power is your father and friend. All right. So, like I said, we're going to continue on in reading The Godly Man's Picture. We are in this section talking about the characteristics of the godly man. And again, as I've said before, this is not just for men. I mean, this is the godly person. Um, obviously, Watson was referring to men in a general sense, but this is the godly person. So, we're in section number eight. A godly man is an evangelical weeper. David sometimes sang with his harp. And sometimes his eyes wept. I water my couch with my tears. Psalm 6 6. Christ calls his spouse his dove. Song of Songs 2 14. The dove is a weeping creature. Grace dissolves and liquefies the soul, causing a spiritual thaw. The sorrow of the heart runs out at the eye. Psalm 31 9. The rabbis report that the same night on which Israel departed from Egypt towards Canaan, all the idols of Egypt were broken down by lightning and earthquake. So too at that very time at which men go out from their natural condition towards heaven, all the idols of sin in the heart must be broken down by repentance. A melting heart is the chief branch of the covenant of grace, Ezekiel 36.26, and it is the product of the Spirit. I will pour upon the house of David the Spirit of grace, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and, and they shall mourn for him, Zechariah 12.10. Question, but why is a godly man a weeper? Is not sin pardoned the ground of joy? Has he not had a transforming work upon his heart? Why then does he weep? Answer. A godly man finds sufficient matter for weeping. Number one. He weeps for the indwelling of sin. The law in his members. Romans 7.23 The outbursts and the first risings of sin. His nature is a poison fountain. 
A regenerate person grieves that he carries about with him that which is enmity to God. His heart is like the wide sea in which there are innumerable creeping creeping things. Psalm 104.25 Vain, sinful thoughts. A child of God laments hidden wickedness. He has more evil in him than he knows of. There are those meanderings in his heart which he cannot trace, an un- unknown world of sin. Who can understand his errors? Psalm 19.12 Number 2. A godly man weeps for the adherence of corruption. If he could get rid of sin, there would be some comfort, but he cannot shake off this viper. Sin clings to him like leprosy. Though a child of God forsakes his sin, yet sin will not forsake him. Concerning the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season. Daniel 7.12 So though the dominion of sin is taken away, yet its life is prolonged for a season, and while sin lives, it molests. The Persians were daily enemies to the Romans, and they would always be invading their frontier. So sin wars against the soul, 1 Peter 2.11, and there is no cessation of arms until death. Will this not cause tears? A child of God weeps that he is sometimes overcome by the prevalence of corruption. The evil I would not do, that I do. Romans 7.19 Paul was like a man carried down the stream. How often a saint is overpowered by pride and passion. When David had sinned, he steeped his soul in the brinish tears of repentance. It can only grieve a regenerate person to think that he should be so foolish after he has felt the sting of sin, as yet as yet to put this fire in his bosom again. Number four, a godly heart grieves that he cannot be more holy. It troubles him that he shoots so short of the rule and standard which God has set. I would, he says, love the Lord with all my heart, but how defective my love is, how far short I come of what I should be, no, of what I might have been. What can I see in my life but either blanks or blots? A, number five, a godly man sometimes weeps out of the sense of God's love. Gold is the finest and most solid of all metals, yet it is the soonest melted by fire. Gracious hearts, which are golden hearts, are the soonest melted into tears by the fire of God's love. I once knew a holy man who was walking in his garden and shedding plenty of tears when a friend came on him accidentally and asked him why he wept. He broke, for, broke forth into this pathetic expression, Oh, the love of Christ, the love of Christ. Thus we have seen the cloud melted into water by the sunbeams. Number six, a godly person weeps because the sins he commits are in some sense worse than the sins of other men. The sin of a justified person is very odious because he acts contrary to his own principles. He not only sins against the rule, but against his principles, against his knowledge, vows, prayers, hopes, excuse me, Um, experiences. He knows how deadly sin will cost him, yet he ventures upon the forbidden fruit. Two, because it is a sin of unkindness, 1 Kings 11, 9. Peter's denying of Christ was a sin against love. Christ had enrolled him among the apostles. He had taken him up into the Mount of Transfiguration and shown him the glory of heaven in a vision. Yet after all this dazzling mercy, it was base ingratitude that he should deny Christ. This made him go out and weep bitterly, Matthew twenty six seventy five. He baptized himself, as it were, in his own tears. The sins of the godly go nearest to God's heart. Other sin, others' sins anger God. These grieve him. 
The sins of the wicked pierce Christ's side. The sins of the godly wound his heart. The unkindness of a spouse goes nearest the heart of her husband. Number three, because it reflects more dishonor upon God. By this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme me. Or, sorry, to blaspheme. Second Samuel twelve fourteen. The sins of God's people put black spots on the face of piety. Thus we see what cause there is, why a child of God should weep even after conversion. Now this sorrow of a godly man for sin is not a despairing sorrow. He does not mourn without hope. Iniquities prevail against me. Psalm 65, 3. There is the holy soul weeping. As for our transgressions, you shall purge them away. Psalm 65, 3. There is faith triumphing. Godly sorrow is excellent. <sighs> there is as much difference between the sorrow of a godly man and a wicked man as there is between the water of a spring which is clean and sweet and the water of the sea which is salty and brackish. A godly man's sorrow has these three qualifications. One, it is inward. It is a sorrow of soul. Hypocrites disfigured their faces. Matthew 6.16 Godly sorrow goes deep. It is a pricking at the heart. Acts 2.37 True sorrow is a spiritual martyrdom. Therefore it is called soul affliction. Leviticus 23.29 Number two, it is sincere. It is more for the evil that, that is in sin than the evil which follows after. It is more for the sport than the sting. Hypocrites weep for sin only as it brings affliction. I have read of a fountain that never sends forth streams except the evening before a famine. Hypocrites never send forth the streams of their tears except when God's judgments are approaching. Number three, it is influential. It makes the heart better. By the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Ecclesiastes 7.3 Divine tears not only wet, but wash. They purge out the love of sin. Use 1. How far from being godly are those who scarcely ever shed a tear for sin? If they lose a near relation, they weep. But though they are in danger of losing God in their souls, they do not weep. How few know what it is to be in an agony of sin, or what a broken heart means. Their eyes are not like the fish pools in Heshbon, full of water, Song of Songs 7.4, but rather like the mountains of Gilboa, which had no dew upon them, Second Samuel 1.21. It was a greater plague for Pharaoh to have his heart turned into stone than to have his rivers turned into blood. Others, if they do sometimes shed a tear, are never the better for it. They go on in wickedness and do not drown their sins in their tears. Use 2. Let us labor for this divine characteristic. Be weepers. This is a repentance not to be repented of. 2 Corinthians 7.10 It is reported of Mr. John Bradford, the martyr, that he was of a melting spirit. He seldom sat down to his meal unless some tears trickled down his cheeks. There are two lavers to wash away sin, blood and tears. The blood of Christ washes away the guilt of sin. Our tears wash away the filth. Repenting tears are precious. God puts them in his bottle, Psalm 56, 8. They are beautifully, I'm sorry, they are beautifying. A tear in the eye adorns more than a ring of the, on the finger. Oil makes the face shine, Psalm 104, 15. Tears make the heart shine. Repenting tears are comforting. A sinner's mirth turns to melancholy. A saint's mourning turns to music. Repentance may be compared to myrrh, which though it is bitter to the taste, it, it's, it, though it's bitter to the taste, is comforting to the spirits. 
Repentance may be bitter to the flesh, but it is most refreshing to the soul. Wax that melts is fit for the seal. A melting soul is fit to take the stamp of all heavenly blessings. Let us give Christ the water of our tears, and he will give us the wine of his blood. Section 9. A godly man is a lover of the word. Oh, how I love your law. Psalm 119.97. Number 1. A godly man loves the written word. Chrysostom compares the scripture to a garden set with nuts and flowers. A godly man delights to walk in this garden and sweetly console himself. He loves every branch and parcel of the word. He loves the counseling part of the word, as it is a directory and rule of life. The word is the merciful statute, which points us to our duty. It contains in it credina et faciena, things to be believed and practiced. A goodly man loves the aphorisms of the word. Number two, he loves the threatening part of the word. The scripture is like the Garden of Eden, as it has a tree of life in it, so it has a flaming sword at its gate. This is the threatening of the word. It flashes fire in the face of every person who goes on obstinately in wickedness. God will wound the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. That is a herald pointing the way and giving needed intelligence. Psalm 68, 21. The word gives no indulgence to evil. It will not let a man halt between sin and God. The true mother would not let the child be divided, 1 Kings 3.26, and God will not have the heart divided. The word thunders out threatenings against the very appearance of evil. It is like the flying roll full of curses, Zechariah 5.1. A godly man loves the menaces of the word. He knows there is love in every threat. God would not have us perish. Therefore he mercifully threatens us, so that he may scare us from sin. God's threats are like the sea mark, which shows the rocks in the sea, and threatens death to those who come near. The threat is a curbing bit to check us, so that we may not run headlong to hell. There is mercy in every, in every threat. Number three, he loves the conciliatory part of the word. The promises. He goes feeding on these as Samson went on his way eating the honeycomb. Judges 14, 8, and 9. The promises are all narrow in sweetness. They are our Bezer's stone, an antidote when we are fainting. They are the conduits of the water of life. In the multitude of my thoughts within me, your comfort delights my soul. Psalm 94, 19. The promises were David's harp to drive away sad thoughts. They were the breast which milked out divine consolation to him. A godly man shows his love for the written word by diligently reading it. The noble Bereans searched the scriptures daily, Acts 17.11. Apollos was mighty in the scriptures, Acts 18.24. The word is our Magna Carta for heaven. We should be daily reading over this charter. The word shows what is truth and what is error. It is the field where the pearl of great price is hidden. Now we should dig how we should dig for this pearl. A godly man's heart is the library to hold the word of God. It dwells richly in him. Colossians 3.16 It is reported of Melanchthon that when he was young, he always carried the Bible with him and greedily read in it. The word has a double work, to teach us and to judge us. Those who will not be taught by the word shall be judged by the word. Oh, let us make ourselves familiar with the scripture. What if it were as in the time of Diocletian, who commanded by proclamation that the Bible be burned? 
or as in Queen Mary's day when it meant death to have a Bible in English, by diligent conversing with Scripture. Uh, we may carry a Bible in our heads by frequently meditating on it. It is my meditation all the day, Psalm 119.97. A pious soul meditates on the verity and sanctity of the word. He not only has a few transient thoughts about it, but leaves his mind steeping in the scriptures. By meditation, he sucks honey from his sweet flower and prepares a meal of holy truths for his mind. By delighting in it, it is his recreation. Your words were found, and I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. Jeremiah 15:16. Never did a man take such delight in a dish that he loved, as the prophet did in the word. And indeed, how can a saint help but take great satisfaction in the word, because all that he ever hopes to be, be worth is contained in it? Does a son not take pleasure in reading his father's will and testament, in which the father conveys his estate to him? By hiding. By hiding it, excuse me. Your word have I hidden in my heart, Psalm 119.11. As one hides a treasure so that it will not be stolen, the word is the jewel. The heart is the cabinet where it must be locked up. Many hide the word in their memory, but not in their heart. <clears throat> and why would David enclose the word in his heart? That I might be kept from sinning against you. As one would carry an antidote around him when he comes to an infected place, so a godly man carries the word in his heart as a spiritual antidote to preserve him from the infection of sin. Why have so many been poisoned with error, others with moral vice, <clears throat> unless they have not hidden the word as a holy antidote in their heart? By defending it, a wise man will not let his land be taken from him, but will defend his title to it. David looked upon the word as his land of inheritance, your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever. Psalm 119.11 <clears throat> Sorry, just a sec. <clears throat> and do you think he would let his inheritance be wrested from his hand? A godly man will not only distribute, I'm sorry, dispute for the word, but die for it. I saw under the altar the souls of those who were slain for the word of God. Revelation 6.9 by preferring it above the precious things, a above food, I have esteemed the words of his mouth above my necessary food, Job 23.12, above riches, the law of your mouth is better to me than the thousands in gold and silver, Psalm 119.72, above worldly honor, the story of King Edward VI is memorable, on the day of his coronation when they presented three swords before him, signifying to him that he was monarch of three kingdoms, the king said, there is still one sword missing. On being asked what that was, he answered, The Holy Bible, which is the sword of the Spirit, and is to be preferred before these ensigns of royalty. By talking about it, my tongue will speak of your word. Psalm 119, 172. As a covetous man talks about his rich purchase, so a godly man speaks of the word. What a treasure it is! How full of beauty and sweetness! Those whose those whose mouths the devil has gagged, who never speak of God's word, indicate that they never reaped any good from it. 8. By conforming to it. The word is his sundial, by which he sets his life, the balance in which he weighs his action. He copies out the word in his daily task, in his daily walk, excuse me. I have kept the faith, 2 Timothy 4, 7. Paul kept the doctrine of faith and lived the life of faith. Question. Why is a godly man a lover of the word? 
Answer 1. Because of the excellence of the Word. The word, word is our pillar of fire to guide us. It shows us what rocks we are to avoid. It is the map by which we sail to the new Jerusalem. The word is a spiritual optic glass through which we may see our own, our own hearts. The glass of nature which the heathen had revealed spots in their lives. But this glass reveals spots in the imagination. That glass revealed the spots of their unrighteousness. This reveals the spots of our righteousness. When the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. Romans 7, 9 When the word came as a glass, all my opinion of self-righteousness died. The word of God is a sovereign comfort in distress. While we follow this cloud, the rock follows us. This is my comfort in my affliction. For your word has quickened me. Psalm 119.50 Christ is the fountain of living water. The word is the golden pipe through which it runs. What can revive revive at the hour of death except the word of life philippians 2 16 wow okay answer two because of the efficacy it has had upon him that this day star has risen in his heart and ushered in the son of righteousness a godly man loves the preached word preaching is a commentary on the written host the scriptures are sovereign oils and balsams preaching the word is pouring them out the scriptures are precious spices Preaching the word is the pounding of these spices, which creates a wonderful fragrance and delight. The word preached is the rod of God's strength, Psalm 110.2, and the breadth of his hips, of his lips, sorry, Isaiah 11.4. What was once said of the city of Thebes, that it was built by the sound of amph Amphius harp, is much more true of soul conversion. It is built by the sound of the gospel harp. Therefore, pre therefore, Preaching the word is called the power of God unto salvation, 1 Corinthians 1.24. By this, Christ is said now to speak to us from heaven, Hebrews 12.25. This ministry of the word is to be preferred before the ministry of angels. A godly man loves the word, preach, loves the word preached, partly from the good he has found by it. He has felt the dew fall with his manna, and he loves it preached, partly because it is God's institution. The Lord has appointed his ordinance to save him. The king's image turns the coin into currency. The stamp of divine authority on the word preached makes it, an in, makes it an engine conducive to men's salvation. Use. Let us test by this characteristic whether we are godly. Are we lovers of the world? Are we, I'm sorry, are we lovers of the word? Do we love the written word? What sums of money the mar martyrs gave for a few leaves of the Bible? Do we make the word our bosom friend? As Moses often had the rod of God in his hand, so we should have the book of God in our hand. When we need direction, do we consult this, this sacred oracle? When we find our corruptions are strong, do we make use of this sword of the Spirit to hew them down? When we are disconsolate, do we go to this bottle of the water of life for comfort? Then we are lovers of the word. But alas, how can those who are seldom conversant with the scriptures say they love them? Their eyes become sore when they look at a Bible. The two testaments are hung up like rusty armor, which is seldom or never made use of. The Lord wrote the law with his own finger. But though God took pains to write it, men will not take pains to read it. They would rather look at a pack of cards than at a Bible. Do we love the preached word? Do we prize it in our judgments? Do we receive it into our hearts? Do we fear the loss of the preached word more than the loss of peace and trade? Is it the removal of the ark which troubles us? 
Again, do we attend to the word with reverential devotion when the judge is giving his, his charge on the beat, on the bench, all attend. When the word is preached, the great God is giving us his charge. Do we listen to it as we would to a matter of life and death? This is a good sign that we love the word. Again, do we love the sanctity of the word? The word preached is to beat down sin and advance holiness. Do we love it for its spirituality and purity? Many love the word preached only for its eloquence and notions. They come to a sermon as they would to a music lecture, Ezekiel 33, 31, and 32, or as they would, or as they would to a garden to pick flowers, but not to have their lusts subdued or their hearts bettered. These are like a foolish woman who paints her face but neglects her health. Again, do we love the convictions of the word? Do we love the word when it comes home to our conscience and shoots its arrows of reproof at our sins? It is the minister's duty sometimes to reprove. The one who can speak, speak smooth words in the pulpit but does not know how to reprove is like a sword with a fine handle but without an edge. Rebuke them sharply, Titus 2.15. Dip the nail in oil. Reprove in love, yes, but strike the nail home. Now, Christian, when the word touches on your sin and says, You are the man, do you love that reproof? Can you bless God that the sword of the Spirit has divided between you and your lusts? This is indeed a sign of grace, and it shows that you are a lover of the word. A corrupt heart loves the comforts of the word, but not the reproofs. They hate the one who reproves in the gate. Amos 5.10 Their eyes flash with fire, like venomous creatures that at the slightest touch poison. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and gnashed their teeth at him. Acts 7.54 when Stephen touched them to the quick, they were furious and could not endure it. Question. How shall we know that we love the reproofs of the word? Answer. 1. When we desire to sit under a heart-searching ministry, who cares for medicine that will not work. A godly man does not choose to sit under a ministry that we will not work upon, I'm sorry, that will not work upon his conscience. Answer. 2. When we pray that the word may confront our sins, if there is any tra traitorous lust in our hearts, we would have it found out and executed. We do not want a covered. We do not want sin covered but cured. We can open our breasts to the sword of the word and say, "Lord, kill the sin." Answered three, when we are thankful for a reproof, let the righteous strike me. It will be a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It will be like excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. Psalm one forty one five. David was glad for a reproof. Suppose a man were in the mouth of a lion, and another were to shoot the lion and save the man. Would he not be thankful? So when we are in the mouth of sin, like the mouth of a lion, and the minister, by a reproof, shoots this sin to death, will we not be thankful? A gracious soul rejoices when the, sh when the sharp lance of the word has pierced his abscesses. He wears a reproof like a jewel on his ear. Like an earring of gold, so is a reprover on an obedient ear. To conclude, it is convincing preaching that must do the soul good. A nipping reproof prepares us for comfort, just as a nipping frost prepares for the sweet flowers of spring. All right, that is going to be our reading for the day. Ugh. I hope this time... With me reading has been beneficial to you. I hope it's edifying for you. Um, I'm definitely enjoying it. It's definitely very different. And of course, Thomas Watson doesn't use the same English I do. So it's a little bit, it can be a little bit harder to uh, keep track of what he's doing and, and all of that. But 
<clears throat> I hope, again, I hope you're enjoying it. I, I definitely am. All right. Well, I hope you're going to have a good evening and uh, God willing, I'll see you in the morning. Let's go ahead and close out with our fourth day evening prayer as we usually do. It's called God All Sufficient. Let's pray. King of glory, divine majesty, every perfection adorns thy nature and sustains thy throne. The heavens and earth are thine, the world is thine and its fullness. Thy power created the universe from nothing. Thy wisdom has managed all its multi multiple concerns, presiding over nations, families, individuals. Thy goodness is boundless. All creatures wait on thee, are supplied by thee, are satisfied in thee. How precious are the thoughts of thy mercy and grace. How excellent thy loving kindness that draws men to thee. Teach us to place our happiness in thee, the blessed God, never seeking life among the dead things of earth or asking for that which satisfies the deluded. But may we prize the light of thy smile, implore the joy of thy salvation, find our heaven in thee. Thou hast attended to our happiness more than we can do. Though we are fallen creatures, thou hast not neglected us. In love and pity thou hast provided us a Savior. Apply his redemption to our hearts by justifying our persons and sanctifying our natures. We confess our transgressions. Have mercy on us. We are weary. Give us rest. Ignorant, make us wise unto salvation. Helpless, let thy strength be made perfect in our weakness. Poor and needy, bless us with Christ's unsearchable riches. Perplexed and tempted, let us travel on unchecked, undismayed, knowing that thou hast said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Blessed be thy name. Amen. All right. Well, again, thank you for spending this time with me. Again, I hope you have a wonderful evening. And like I said before, God willing, I will see you in the morning. Have a great night. God bless. Mm -hmm.